Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Anthropologically Speaking. I'm Katie. I'm Is. And I'm Isabel. And today we're joined by a special guest, Kira, who's not only an undergrad expert in zoo archaeology, but also the president of the Master Anthropology Society. Kira, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little about what you do, where you go to school, that sort of shenanigans? Right, so I am currently a fourth year anthro student at McMaster, and um, I am also doing minors in archaeology and sustainability. Um, I've worked as a research assistant at Sustainable Archaeology, which is actually how I met Isabel. Um, and I've been volunteering with the Archaeology Teaching Lab, doing zoo archaeology since my first year. Um, Super cool. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. And double minor too. That was so, ambitious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it took a lot of finagling. Oh, I can we'll imagine that. <laughs> yeah, I did a single one and that was that it was a lot, even with one. Um so you mentioned that like you started with uh zoo archaeology. Um can you tell us a bit about what zoo archaeology is for our listeners that don't know? All right, so zooarchaeology is essentially the study of animal bones that are in an archaeological context. So it's the identification and analysis of animal bones that are old. <laughs> awesome. what, and yeah, that's super cool. What got you into zoark? It's actually kind of a funny story. Um, when I first came to university, I knew that I wanted to do archaeology, but I was originally interested in biowork. Um, <laughs> One yeah. of us. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Almost. <laughs> um, but um, I got a volunteer position doing zooarchaeology and I just fell in love with it and <laughs> decided that that was what I wanted to do. <laughs> um, Pretty cool. Awesome. Yeah. Do you like seek out animal remains in your environment? <laughs> like, do you hope to find a dead animal on the side of the road? <laughs> Okay, I don't want to sound like a serial killer, but... <laughs> hey, we, we all have on this show. Oh, yeah, it's, but, it's a rite of passage on the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I definitely have never carried a pigeon corpse through downtown. <laughs> I was just, like, carrying it, like, in the open. <laughs> just like, classic Hamiltonian. Like, yeah. You know, honestly, I've seen weirder things in Hamilton. I have seen far weirder things in Hamilton. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, amazing. <laughs> What do you, like, hope to do with that in the future? Like, what are your prospects? Do you plan to do more education in it? Or? <laughs> Bit of a loaded question to ask. Oh, isn't it? <laughs> in their undergrad, what their prospects are. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone in anthropology. <laughs> um, well, I would really like to get into doing, like, zooarchaeological research, like, either, like, contract work with CRM firms, doing analysis of like the remains that they find or you know get a I don't know uh, yeah. a research position somewhere would be a lovely just um <laughs> pipe dream yeah <laughs> the future awesome and um, for anybody listening that doesn't know uh CRM is cultural resource management and it's um when you work in like a private firm as like a licensed archaeologist it's how a lot of the archaeology goes down in the world these days. So, girl, what sort of research are you working on right now, then? 
So right now, um, well, okay. So I started working with material from a, a British 18th century fort. That was how I got into um, so archaeology. That was the first thing that I worked on um, in the archaeology lab. Um, but now I'm currently working on a site that's just about the polar opposite, if there could be opposite sites, which is um, fishbone assemblages Ooh. from the Tongan archipelago um, from 2,800 years ago or oh so. God. That is wildly different. And have you That is wildly different. It's yeah. almost like it's the transferable like identification mm -hmm. is totally, but absolutely zero crossover as far as. Like, oh, yeah. Because, like, you know, like, I can imagine that um, you're, if you have a sheep bone here, you're going to have a sheep bone there. But, um, well, I mean, that's not super relevant because you just said it was fish. But, um, but like, I can imagine that, like, although, like, the skills are there, um, like, the context, you got to totally know, like, relearn context of that area and oh, like, what those people were doing. And that's, like, because context is so huge in archaeology of any type. And what are yeah. you looking for in that research? Like, have you found any patterns or, like... I was going to get to that. Um, <laughs> thank you for reminding me. <laughs> so, um, the research that I'm working on now is investigating sort of the lifeways of the original inhabitants of the archipelago, which is associated with the Lapita cultural complex, um, which was a seafaring Polynesian culture um, around... 3,000 to like 2,500 years ago. Um, so I've been looking at fisheries archaeological research in, a, in terms of how people interacted with their environment and the way that people, well, less, more specifically how people fished, more generally how people interacted with their environments. That's awesome. That's really interesting. And I imagine it's super difficult working with fish like fish bones like they're so tiny there are so many zoo archaeologists who despise fish bones um <laughs> but i essentially took that fact and a bunch of spite and was just like i'm going to <laughs> fish bones because everyone else hates them <laughs> i love that motivation that's amazing <laughs> <laughs> yeah the only time i've worked with fish bones is um two times one is not working with fish. One is like fishing and then like deboning a fish. That's not working yeah. with fish. Ones. But the other time is just in like um, intro to archaeology. I remember being like, oh my God, there's so many unfamiliar bones. Because like bioarc, uh, human bioarc is yeah. my, my thing. So I'm like, oh my God, what does this do? Where does it go? <laughs> so yeah, good. They're <laughs> almost completely non transferable yeah. to. I remember yeah. there's like a cleave room and I'm like, what is this? And a yeah. pharyngeal plate or I can remember. Oh yeah, pharyngeal plates. Uh, that's actually really related to the specific research that I'm doing right now. <laughs> okay, I'm glad I know the buzzwords then. <laughs> yeah, I hated fish. Like, because I took zoo archaeology in third year and I avoided fish bones as much as I possibly could because there's the one 
bone. I feel like it's part of their mouth. It has all the tiny holes in it. And I have That's such, like, I have that place. weird phobia of small holes that people have. You do. And I despise it. I couldn't handle it. Oh, my gosh. That's so yeah. So I could never be you, Kira. <laughs> not only for that reason, because it's simply I'm not good enough. No, no, that's completely fair. There are definitely <laughs> some creepy-looking bones. <laughs> yeah. um, so just to, like, make it more general here, and um, so just what kinds of things can we learn from animal bones in an archaeological context? Like, There are, like, so many different ways that you can go with zooarchaeology, just depending on, like, context and, like, the types of animals that you find. And your research goals. <laughs> so um, just on the most basic level, um, we can learn like biological information about the animal, the species, or the lowest ta taxonomic classification, which be like the family, the genus, or the order, um, just depending on the preservation of the um, bone or um, the availability of references. Um, I will anyway um and then sometimes you can tell age and sometimes you can tell sex but that also depends on the completeness of the bone um and then any evidence of pathology or cutting and breaking of the bones so in that way you can kind of do the bioarch sort of thing of <laughs> pathologies and okay i'm getting ahead of myself okay <laughs> <laughs> the most basic use of zooarchaeology is essentially to look at animal bones as a source of food and as a reflection of the environments. Um, so that's the way that zooarchaeology sort of started out in the 60s and 70s when people realized, hmm, maybe bones can actually tell us something and stopped just throwing them out. <laughs> Imagine. Oh my God. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, people started to realize that they can show how people um, interacted with animals in the past, how they hunted wild game, um, whether a species was commensal, so like if it was like rats are a commensal species, like they're just around, but we don't want them to be there, but they're going to be there, so that's different from like a domesticate, um, but then also domesticated animals, of course. Um, so things like the age and sex of the remains can tell you a lot about, um, like, specifically in farming or agricultural communities, about the way that they treat different animals, like selectively culling males that are younger because females are more economically important because they can produce milk too, and also have kids. <laughs> um, and then age and sex are also another less, less common way of using age and sex in zooarchaeology is looking at what would now be considered like conservation or um, just a different way of interacting with the world in which like you kind of consider the way that like killing male deer is more common in this context because females are more valuable to maintain the population or things like that in which choices in hunting are taken for conservation. Mm -hmm. Cool. So um, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> There's oh. a lot you can do with archaeology. There's a wow. lot you can learn. That's awesome. 
Um, yeah, that's really cool. Because like <laughs> one thing that I think a common misconception is like, oh, in order to learn about humans, you have to look at just the human bones. And like, that's totally, you know, like you can learn so much about human activity just even through animals that they may have interacted with through butchering or hunting or fishing or that kind of thing. The next one's really, really like that. Um, it's sort of, it's really limited because there's not that many contexts that it actually applies to, but it's when you actually do sort of an osteobiography of an individual animal or a set of individual animals like dog burials or different special deposits that may or may not be ritual. <laughs> That's the... <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Um, so classic archaeology line. Oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's the classic it's line of it's making you ritual. <laughs> I can't figure out what it is, so that's um, gotta be it. <laughs> yeah, so it's used a lot with dog burials. Um, a really well-known example from Ontario is the Cleveland dog, which has been published on a lot, which is a dog from a neutral Iroquois village that had evidence of tuberculosis um, in the form of bony deformities. Uh, which implies, due to the degree of severity, that the dog was being really well cared for by its humans, mm -hmm. and it wasn't just kind of, it got sick and then it was left to die. People cared about it, and people were bonded with it. Mm -hmm. um, I love that. Yeah. So wholesome. <laughs> <laughs> and I assume that's like, is that the same as like, I know in humans we have like the osteological paradox where in order to get to that progression of disease, they have to be, you know, have like good immune systems and be cared for. Is that the same sort of like deal with yeah, that? Yeah, it's the same sort of thing. Um, oh. Yeah, it wouldn't, it would have had to have been sick for a very long time mm -hmm. to get to that degree of osteological change. Yeah. So speaking about Ontario, um, in an Ontario context, what sort of things would you like find at a prehistoric site in Ontario versus like maybe a historic one? And uh, why, why is it important to distinguish like timing of that kind of site, especially here? Um, well, first off, it would probably be pretty evident before you got to the animal bones <laughs> that it was definitely either historic or pre-contact. But um, in terms of what things you'd find uh, at a pre-contact site in Ontario would be um, mainly deer, the deer were the main source of, like, hunted animals. <laughs> um, they were obviously not just used for meat, but also, like, their skins and things. Um, and then beyond this, um, there's a lot of fish um, and fur-bearing animals, like raccoons and weasels and things like that, uh, which can be interpreted a number of different ways. But... Um, in a historic Euro-Western type of site, um, like historic homesteads, these would be mostly defined by domestic species like cows and sheep and goats and pigs. Mm -hmm. um, there's sometimes also things like deer and turkey, which are um, from people on homesteads like to hunt. They like guns. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's a lot less common. Mm -hmm. um, it's more of like an occasional thing. I don't think that there's been many, if any, historic homesteads that have been really deer-centric <laughs> in their in their food ways. Yeah, so that's like we can look at a subsistence change over time 
um, with the introduction of new animals uh, that are not commonly found in the Americas and that kind of thing. So that's really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so when you're looking kind of at these sites, can you explain um, why it's important to distinguish between juvenile and adult remains at the site? Um, yeah, so um, it's important to distinguish this for a couple of different reasons. Um, so first, there's the idea of seasonality and the use of the resource. Um, like I talked before, like cons, cons Mm -hmm. conservatively, I guess, is the word I was looking for. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you have a six-month-old deer that's found it, like you've estimated the age to be about six months old, then you can extrapolate from that that given a spring birth and that the animals killed, that the animals killed in the fall because of the oh. six months thing. And then you can say, well, if this animal was killed in the fall, there were people here in the fall. That's yeah. really cool. Oh, that's really interesting, yeah. Um, and then along with that, in a similar sort of vein, is fish bones, which you can't... The, aging isn't really done, but size and age are tied in fish, because um, as a fish grows, I mean, as a fish lives, it just <laughs> continues to grow, so a larger fish is an older fish. Okay. Um, and... A lot of people use specific elements of fish to estimate the age that it was and then from that you can, from the profile of the ages that you find, you can sort of estimate the sustainability sort of of the fishery. Like if there was a ton and in the earlier levels there were a ton of really big fish and then there were only small fish, you can assume from that that the fishery is being depleted over the years and mm. over harvesting was happening or maybe just a different fishing method was used you can never really know for sure <laughs> can you apply like the seasonality technique to more historic um, sites and like domestic animals like could you do you use it to like determine when people were slaughtering their animals or anything like i'm not sure you <laughs> I'm not super familiar with that, okay. but I'm, I'm sure people have tried. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it's probably, like, it's probably more <laughs> relevant for like a non-sedentary population. Yeah. Because like if, if you're wanting to know if somebody was there um, based on like nomadic patterns and that kind of thing, that might be like helpful for that maybe? Yeah. Um, I think you could probably get a general sort of thing because there are fairly standardized, like when people are breeding their sheep and when people are breeding their pigs is, I'm not gonna say that it's super standardized, but I'm sure that there are people who have tried to be like, based on this, and they were doing that in uh, Toronto at the time, so this <laughs> pig was probably six months old, so they were probably killing, anyway. Yeah. I'm purely speculating at this point. I have not personally done this at all. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I also wanted to ask you a question. You mentioned about uh, pre-contact sites. They often used not just the food, not just deer for food, but also for like their skins and stuff. Can you see evidence of that sort of practice on the bone in any sort of markings or 
There can be um, evidence of skinning in specific types of um, marks on the bones. It's not super common because people were good at skinning animals. <laughs> but I guess so, like other tool use too, like they use the bones for various yes, things, such as like yeah. needle, needles, right? So yeah. you can see that evidence, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's something I've actually wondered myself is, like, I know that at some sites we have, like, worked bones um, that are off made of, like, animal bones. Does that um, kind of, like, bone pools and that kind of thing fall under zooarchaeology, or would that fall under more of, like, a material archaeology? It depends who you ask. You could, I'd say most people consider it a material archaeology, okay. but um, there are definitely studies that show, like, zooarchaeological studies that are of what kind of animal is usually used for a bone needle and things like mm -hmm. that like um because it's actually really interesting because um in europe there are these combs made of antler and a bunch of people had tried to estimate what they were based on just the way that they looked um and i read a paper that was about using this sort of, it was a protein, um, like an analytic method using like mild, like, oh, that was not English, <laughs> <laughs> molecular, um, like protein identification using like mass spectrometry, things way above my pay grade, but it essentially showed that people were wrong about what animals that they were coming from, like, they thought it was a roe deer, but it was a red deer, and things like that, so it's, it is pretty important to look at them as more than just, it's a comb. <laughs> think it's a deer. It's cool that you can get that specific with the species of animal, that you can distinguish which type of deer, like with this expensive molecular. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not something that many people do for just, like, you gotta have a very specific research question in order to do. It's called zooms or zooarchaeological um, mass spectrometry. I think there's a word in the middle there, but that's the gist of it. Cool. Um, so, and it costs like five dollars per bone, and so if you're, if you have an assemblage of like 1,400 bones, you're just gonna yes. do that by eye. Yes. You're not gonna pay five dollars a bone for 1,400 bones. Plus yeah. at this point you have to kind of determine whether it's worth it or not, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so speaking of identifying bones, so I don't know how well you can be able to explain this over a podcast or radio, but like, what kind of things do you look at when you're trying to identify a bone, like whether they're fragmented or you get a whole bone in front of you? Yeah, I was kind of trying to come up with a good thing to, to say about <laughs> that because it is very like visual as a thing, yeah. but, um, it is, it does differ from the analysis of human bones in a lot of ways when you're going to like ID an animal bone um, versus a human bone. Right. Um, just the first thing is the importance of a really broad skeletal reference <laughs> collection. Um, in an ideal wor world, the collection would have most of the animals in the region. Um, but not just like one, you'd have different sexes, different ages, and even different sizes, because like with humans, animals have variation between individuals and sexes. 
So that can often cause problems when trying to ID things if you only have a male raccoon and it was weirdly small. Um, <laughs> and then there's a bone that you're like, it's pro it looks like it's pro it looks very raccoon, but I don't have something that quite matches it. And then right. <laughs> so that kind of decreases your like certainty about things. So yeah. um, on the more specifics of um, identifying bones, um, it's definitely infinitely easier with whole bones yeah. um, <laughs> mm -hmm. versus fragments. But at the same time, there are some bones that don't vary that much between species. So that also kind of influences the um, specificity. Mm -hmm. Um, so would you say it's just like practice, 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 like just until you kind of get the hang of it? Is that basically the only technique in identification? Practice, 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 and have a huge reference collection. Yeah, that's really um, like I always find the use of reference collections really interesting because for um, for for the rest of us in this chat right now we just either look and we're like it's either human it's not human if it's not human that doesn't belong to us so we can't deal <laughs> so it's like we only have to like identify one species which is um a lot easier i think but um just to just to end things off um what what do you think the most exciting animal bone type is and why like what kind of things can we learn about it okay so I'm going to give one really specific one and one less specific one. Um, the really specific one is otoliths, which are ear bones in fish, <laughs> which are really, really cool. I've never seen one in real life that, I, that I've actually worked with, but they are so, such a wealth of information because they're really, really identifiable, like, to species. And they provide really pre precise aging because they have annular rings on them, like trees. Oh, um, that is so cool. Yeah. And you can do isotopic analysis to see um, kind of where the fish were captured with that, too. It's just, it's like the ideal thing to find is an otolith, <laughs> in my opinion. I didn't know fish had ears, so... But, um, <laughs> Okay, it's less ear. It's like in the region that you'd consider okay, ear. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh. Yeah, in terms of something more general, though, I it's a lot harder because there's so many really, really interesting things you can do with different things. Like... Um, I know someone on Twitter that uh, does zoo work um, that was doing x-ray fluorescence with rat bones, um, which sounded super cool. Yeah. <laughs> and there are papers on isotopes for pig diet in Newfoundland to figure out what type of um, diet the pigs were eating. And then from that, was it a French settlement or a British settlement, which is Absolutely awesome. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, we really, really appreciate it. And I think I can speak for all of us when, uh, when I say we all learned a lot. Because this is oh, yeah. a bit out of our wheelhouse. So um, thank you so much for joining us. Do you want thank to so give our um, 
non-human listener shout out of the week this week, Kira? Um, I'd like to give my shout out to my 13-year-old Black Lab cross, Zoe. Oh, hi, Zoe. (laughs) So cute. All right. Thanks for listening to another episode of Anthropologically Speaking. And uh, listen back next week for another fun episode on To Be Determined. Uh, (laughs) But in the meantime, stay animal phony. Bye. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye.